Amen. If you are able, I would encourage you to please rise as we read God's word together from James chapter 4. And we'll be beginning uh, verse 1 and we're ending in verse 12. So hear the reading of God's word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So far, the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks and praise for this, your word. And because it is your word, Lord, we ask that you would be the one to carry my words to your people. May you enrich, may you bless, may you guide and carry. Not because of my gifts or lack thereof, but because of who you are. A God that is gracious and loving and merciful. So mold us, shape us, make us more like Christ. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. As you know, um, as you've known me well by now, you know I'm a sports fan, and we're not in the season right now, but um, there is a, a rivalry in college football between the University of Michigan and the, they call it, the Ohio State University. It's one of the most intense rivalries in all of college football. But did you know, long before that there was a clash on the gridiron, these two states clashed. Back in the year 1803, when the newly formed state of Ohio took ownership of a sliver of land containing the town of Toledo. Michigan Territory later disputed Ohio's claim on this Toledo Strip. And in the 1830s, they launched a heated debate that teetered on the edge of violence for several weeks. In what became known as the Toledo War, both sides wrestled for position and political control of this small little territory. And believe it or not, both states raised up militias to fight for Toledo. Now, if you've ever been to Toledo, it's not worth fighting for. <laughs> I'm kidding if you're from Toledo, it's, but it's still Toledo. All that to say, President Andrew Jackson finally stepped in because he wanted the votes, actually. And in 1835 and 1836, a compromise was sealed. The agreement saw Michigan Territory relinquish its claim on Toledo, 
in exchange for statehood and a portion of the Upper Peninsula, believe it or not. Many viewed the decision as grave injustice. But some residents, and I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what I read, and this is what some residents even quipped this way. Thank the Lord. I never did like that Michigan weather anyway. <laughs> or, yeah, that's funny, because Ohio and Michigan are, yeah, you got it. Or perhaps a potential battle for the not-so-wonderful to town of Toledo is cause for war. Maybe we would fight over pastry. One more story. So if you're not going to fight for Toledo, you can fight over pastry. Yes, pastry. In 1828, angry mobs destroyed a large portion of Mexico City during a military coup. One of the victims of the rioting was an expatriate French pastry chef named Raymontel, whose small cafe was ransacked by looters. Mexican officials ignored his complaints of restoring his store and getting some money back. So Raymontel petitioned the French government for compensation. His request sat unnoticed for a decade until King Louis Philippe noticed it. The king was already furious that Mexico had failed to repay millions of dollars in loans when he saw this petition on his desk. And so then he returned to Mexico and he demanded that the Mexican government pay 600,000 pesos to Raymontel for his loss for his pastry shop. When the Mexicans balked at handing over such a, a sum, King Louis did the unexpected. He started a war. In October of 1838, a French fleet arrived in Mexico and blockaded the city of Veracruz. When the Mexicans still refused to pay up, the ships started shelling the city. 250 soldiers lost their lives. Even the famous General Santa Ana, who was retired, came back into service, and he lost his leg in the battle. The fighting finally ended in March of 1839 when the British government helped broker a peace deal. As part of the treaty, the Mexicans were forced to pay $600,000 to Ray Montel for pastry or for Toledo. Why do I tell you those stories? To point out to us that we fight over crazy things. We'll fight over Toledo, Ohio, of all places. We'll even fight for good French pastry. We fight for all sorts of reasons. You see, wars and potential wars are fought over just about everything, including blue-collar towns and good food. If that's the case, then we can conclude that wars are fought over greed, selfish ambition, and frankly, just wanting things our way. And if we were to slow down and look just for a second, and we were to take our gaze off of Toledo, Ohio, and French pastry, and we were to look at our own hearts and our own lives, I think we would find similar desires and passions. We might not fight over Toledo or pastry, but we'll fight over our opinions, won't we? We'll fight over our agendas. We'll fight over our thoughts, our emotions. We'll fight for respect. We'll fight for validation. We'll fight for power, control, money, greed. These are the things that we fight for, aren't they? 
Call it Toledo, call it pastry. Call it greed, call it money. We want ours and we want it now. And we'll fight you for it. I'll fight you for mine. This is who we are. You see, we fight for these things in just about every circle that we can possibly imagine. Fight for it in church. Fight for it at work. Fight for it at school. Fight for it in our families. In our marriages. These are the things we fight for. The difficult thing for each one of us to recognize is this is who we are. The difficult thing for each one of us to recognize is this is at the very core of who we are. It's really hard to recognize that often when we get into arguments, disagreements, confrontations, it's not over big things like cities. It's often over little things like pastry and power and ego and respect, emotions, wanting to be right. You see, this is what James is telling us is at the root of war and conflict. So now I want you to think of something. It's not always easy to think about these things, but think about the last conflict you were involved with. Think about the last argument, last fight you've had, not necessarily with fists. I hope none of you have had any of those recently. Think about the context of that conflict. Think about the context of the argument. Why were you fighting? Why were you in conflict? What makes you upset? What caused the anger and the frustration? Was it because you were invalidated? Disrespected? Or simply you're not getting your way? I also want to acknowledge that not all conflicts and disagreements are that simple. There are very complex things, and oftentimes there are, there are violence and abuse, and I don't want to put that on the back burner because that is awful and terrible, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about here. For the most part, when we're upset or at odds with someone else, it's because we haven't gotten our way. Or maybe they just don't agree with us. They don't agree with our worldview. And we think to ourselves, how is that possible? Because my worldview is the best worldview. How can, you, how, how can you not agree with who I am and what I'm thinking and all these things? We don't understand. And so we dismiss that other person with being unintelligent, uninformed, uncaring, unkind, all sorts of different adjectives. And then that's where the conflict arises, isn't it? You don't think like I think. You don't want what I want. And I'm angry about that. Because I think my way is the best way. And we can play that out in families, marriages, work, church, school, any context you want. The root of it is our selfish ambition. It's our pride, our egos, we want to be validated. We want to be respected. And James says, this is where wars come from. This is where conflict comes in. And at the root of all of that, it's simply selfishness. I want mine. 
and I want it now. Throughout the letter that James is writing, writing to newly converted Jewish Christians who have had the world literally turned upside down and they've been dispersed and forced to move all over the known world. They've been forced to leave family and friends, jobs, careers, homes, familiarity. They had every right to be upset. They had every right to be afraid and scared and terrified. They had every right to fight for injustice, oppression, But here James is making an argument to this audience and to this audience. That to have a living and active faith, one must draw near to God. But drawing near to God when we're in the middle of conflict, in the middle of a disagreement, is difficult at best. Because when we're upset and we're frustrated and angry, we don't want to be comforted, do we? We want to be heard. We want to be validated. We want to be told that we are right and we want the other person to say they were wrong and we are right and they will submit to our will and our agenda and our opinion and everything that we want. This is what we want in a fight and an argument and disagreement. Tell me you're wrong. Tell me I'm right. And we want to hear them say it. In the moment, too often turning to God is nowhere on the radar screen. The only blip on the screen is our selfish ambition and desire to be heard and to be right. Our ambition and our greed and covetousness, as James puts it. And James says, this is how the world acts. This is how those without God respond to circumstances And this is where James drives the conviction in really, really hard. He says it's not only how the world acts, but he says, James says, we are friends of the world when we act like that. And if and when we are friends of the world, he makes the connection to say, we've now made ourselves an enemy of God. When our selfish ambition, when our desires, when our agendas get before us, this is what the world loves. And if that's what you love, you are no friend of God. And that hurts. We actually make God our enemy. And we fight and we war against him. Or maybe we can put it another way. Our selfish ambition, our jealousy, our covetousness, we crucify Jesus all over again. We discredit his grace. We discredit his love. We discredit his mercy, his justice, his righteousness. We count the cost that Jesus paid as very little. Dare I even say, no cost at all. Because the grace that's given to us as enemies is inconsequential when we are in the moment of conflict and fighting. We so desperately want to be right. Right? We so desperately want to be validated and affirmed and told that we are special and, 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 and we're intelligent and that we have the right view of the world. Now grace becomes a foreign concept. Not even a word in our language of regular vernacular. 
But here's the amazing part of James. This is the part of James that most people skim right over and they don't digest and wrestle with. You see, in James, we often think of, and I've, and I've hit this pretty hard over the last few weeks, that James is talking about a living and active faith. What does it look like to have faith at work? And we often think of James as just this letter of do this and don't do that, do this and don't do that. If you don't do this, then this will happen. If you do this, that will happen. So in a letter that appears to be all about active faith, James says something in verse 6 that must, must ring very, very loudly in our time here this morning. You see that? He gives more grace. This is the crux of the letter. This is the crux of the gospel. Even though we're friends of the world and enemies of God, he gives more grace. He gives more grace to you and he gives more grace to me as we swim in the waters of our selfish ambition. This struck a chord that bounced off the walls of my heart this week. Scripture is often convicting. The conviction is usually unexpected and it can feel as if we're caught off guard. That's the nature of conviction, yeah? This is where I found myself this week. A bit off guard. And at the same time, knowing full well that the Lord is speaking to me. I am a person who the Lord is speaking to. This text is not for the evil emperor who just wants to take over more land or Toledo not just for the pastry chef who wants 600,000 pesos for injustice. It's not for the nasty neighbor next door who's always up in everybody's business. Scripture's for me and for you. But perhaps the most convicting part of the Scripture today is seeing the contrast between the reality of my selfish ambition and wanting things my way, and more grace. It's the realization that I'm not just friendly with the world, but I love the world. <coughs> and that makes me an enemy of God. And that's almost too much to bear. And then more grace. He gives more grace. I then consider John 17 in the high priestly prayer. The prayer that Jesus prayed on the eve of his death. The prayer that he prayed on the eve of his death as those whom he loved fell silently asleep just a short distance away. For those who are consumed by the constraints of the flesh, Jesus in this moment is praying for the very people that will betray him and are asleep at his side. He's praying for those who sleep and are asleep. He says to the Lord, I am coming to you. Keep them, those people who are asleep, 
Keep them in your hands. Keep them in your name. Keep them whom you've given to me. In the moment of terror, in the moment of fear, in the moment when he could have run the other way, Jesus says, I'm coming to you. He drew near to God and what? He gave more grace. This is the very tipping point of James. In the moment of terror, in those moments of fear and frustration and anger and desperation, it is then that we draw near to God. It's not when we run away and run after our ambitions and our agendas and our desires. This morning I want to give you a peek into how I look at Scripture. As you know, I like to ask questions. I like to ask questions of you guys. I like to ask questions of Scripture. I like to ask questions of God. Because I don't always understand everything. And so when I ask a question, the questions are born out of my own curiosity. They're not questions from a commentator or for another theologian or another pastor. These are legitimately and honestly my questions that I have about Scripture. They're real. Real questions from a real dude that's really standing in front of you. The question is, in that moment of anger and dispute and conflict, How do we draw near to God? Because that's the last thing on earth I want to do. How do we draw near to God in the everyday hustle and bustle of life, let alone when we're in the middle of deep emotional struggle? How? How? We begin to answer that question in a scary place for many of us. It's a place that many of us rarely want to enter or even come close to. It has caution tape all over the entrance. It's barricaded by all sorts of fears and traps. It's a place that blasts the sirens of warning that this goes against everything within my nature. Stay out. Keep out. Run away. It's not for you. It's not safe here. But this is where James tells us to go. Look at verse 7 if you have your Bibles open or your apps open, whatever, whatever it may be. What is that place? It's the very first word in verse 7. See it? Submit. That's a scary place. We begin with submission, that's how. That's how we draw near to God. James says that the first thing that we have to do to draw near is to submit to him. This is where Jesus found himself in the garden when he was praying that prayer in John 17. Luke also has some opinion on that prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus was very intense and probably the most intense prayer that ever was prayed. He desperately wanted another way, as Luke tells us. 
If there is another way, God, if there is another way, my Father, that these people can be saved, if there is any other way, some other way, make that way happen. Please. Through tears, through sweat of blood, he's asking the God, the Father, please, may there be another way. If there's another plan, let's kick that one in right now, can we? He knew what lay ahead of him. Too much pain. Too much horror. Too much wrath, too much death, too much separation, too much hell. That was before Jesus. And we know that same feeling, don't we? Not to that same extent, but we know entering into conflict or too much. If there's another way, let it be. Make that happen. But then what did Jesus say? Luke tells us that Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. You see, submission then is a huge act of faith, isn't it? When we submit, what are we doing? When we submit, we admit. When we submit, we admit that we don't have the answer, and that takes faith. And that takes us saying, my way is not always the right way. But Lord, your way is better than mine. Submission is then giving our will over to the will of God. Submission is admitting that the things that drive our desires to be right, our desire to have our way, is not the ultimate way. Submission means not overlapping our will with God's or somehow weaving our will into God's and saying, well, can I have a little bit of my will? And we can just weave that together and we can call it good and we can, we can be even. As long as I get a little. No. Submission means giving our lives to God. And that's why it's scary. We fully give our desires, our emotions, our energy, and our passions to God. That's why it's a scary place. Because that seems way out of our control but he gives more grace. We start with submission. That's how we draw near to God. And then we go to verse 8. James piles on the challenge. As we submit to the Lord, the natural and next logical step is to draw near to God, but then the question still remains. He says to cleanse ourselves and purify our hearts. That's how we draw near to God, but okay, that doesn't really make all that sense to, sense to me this morning. And this may be a bit too practical for this morning, but just bear with me for a second. I'm willing to bet that all of us, before we came to church today, we did our morning routine and we washed and bathed and we put on nice clothes. Some of us combed our hair. Some of us brushed our teeth. Hopefully we all did those things. To present ourselves before the Lord in a manner worthy of entering into his presence. We do this because we know that at the core, we need to be clean in order to be in the presence of the Lord. And so on some level, when we take a shower and we put on nice clothes and we comb our hair and our brush our teeth, we're saying, Lord, we are presenting ourselves to you as clean as we possibly can. And that's great. And I would encourage that more and more. But this plays out even the practicality of dressing nice for church because it goes deeper than that too, doesn't it? So let's take one more step down that path. We, we need to be more than just clean on the outside, correct? 
To enter into the presence of the Lord, our hearts must be clean. Our souls must be clean. To draw near to God means to not only submit, but to repent. Repent of our double-minded natures. We touched on this a couple weeks ago, if you remember. If you don't, you can go back and look and listen to the sermon. James calls to mind our double-mindedness of, on one hand, we can bless the Lord. On the other hand, we curse the Lord all within the same sentence. And so he's building upon that same double-mindedness as he's talking to these folks gathered here. He's saying, that's who we are. But it's actually even more than that. Here in this portion of the letter, he draws it to the fact that we want our selfish ambition and desire to win the day. We will say we want the will of the Lord in reality and when we come into church and we are clean on the outside, but when it all comes down to it, I want my way and I want it now. And that's where our double minus comes in. And so therefore, we don't really fully submit, do we? Because we still want to weave our will into the Lord's will somehow, some way. So which one's it going to be, Redeemer Arlington? Which one's it going to be, Ryan Arkema? The will of the Lord or the will of the world? And I stand before you here this morning to repent that I want the world's way more than I want God's way. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that's what we all want. Draw near to the Lord means we have to submit and we have to repent. Repent of our desires to have it our way. Repentance means not only acknowledging the reality of this conflict, but actually turning from our selfish ambition and drawing near to God. Forgetting the past, taking off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes of grace that we have in Christ. And so it's then and here where we find ourselves, our whole selves, being washed in the grace of the cross. It's in that moment of true repentance where the still, small voice of God whispers more grace, more grace, more grace. But in our submission and in our repentance, James has us take one more step into answering the question, how do we draw near to God? In our submitting and in our repentance, we find ourselves in an interesting position. If we're truly submitting to God, and we're truly repenting before the Lord our Savior, we find ourselves in humility. It's the only place left. Because if we have submitted our will and our agendas, if we've repented of having selfish ambitions and being an enemy of the God, the only thing left that we can say is, Lord, I am yours. I've been bought with a price, and I am not my own. And that's humility. We find that we can become humble if we've truly and honestly submitted and repented ourselves to God. And then the agendas and the ambitions begin to fall into the background. That's humility. In verse 10, James says that we are to, be, that we are to humble ourselves before the Lord. Ultimately, that means to acknowledge him as king of kings and lord of lords. Not only for the world, 
not only for the world in here, but for the world in here, in our hearts and in our lives. To humble ourselves before the Lord is to fall on our knees as we gaze upon our risen Savior, the Savior who submitted himself to the Lord to the point of death, even death on a cross, the Savior who submitted himself to the torment of God's wrath, the isolation of hell, for you and for me. And because Jesus has done this, the Lord then exalted him. And he rose victorious over sin and death and hell, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, where he will come again to judge. And so each and every time we draw near to God in submission, in repentance, and humility, we take one step closer to seeing the holes that Thomas saw in his wrists of Jesus and the feet of Jesus. Each and every time we draw near to God, we too, like Thomas, then fall on our knees and proclaim, my Lord and my God. And we do this through tears of joy, of embarrassment, of shame, of worship, of fear, of happiness, and we weep all over again, my Lord and my God. We submit, we repent, and we're humbled at the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, draw near to God. Draw near to God because it's there and only there where we receive more grace. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give grace upon grace upon grace. So Lord, as we draw near to this table, we proclaim that we are drawing near to you. As we draw near to this table, we submit now our entire lives to you. We repent of our selfish ambition. And so humble us here and now at this table so that we can receive more grace, your grace, that you've given us through your body and your blood and through your sacrifice, that we could be grown and we could be nourished and we could be set free. You tell us that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. So be present with us now here at this table. Fill us and grow us with your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.